This is our crazy busy series going from burnout to balance. Rhythm or blues is the title of this weekend's message. If you don't rest yourself, you'll eventually wreck yourself. The biblical doctrine of rest is just as important as the doctrine of work. The only way to finish strong, if you want to finish strong emotionally, spiritually, relationally, really every area of your life, you want to finish strong. The only way you can do that is by pacing and replenishing yourself, otherwise prepare to crash. There's a kind of weariness even when you rest. How many of you have ever gone on vacation before and you got back and you were more tired than when you started off? Okay. How many have ever slept for many, many hours at night and still woke up really, really tired, exhausted? Show of hands, show of hands, okay. And what we're talking about here is that there is a rest that's much deeper than just a physical rest. There's a soul rest. And if you don't have the soul rest, then... Uh, all the physical rest in the world won't make up the difference. And so there is a kind of weariness even when you rest and a kind of rest even when you're exerting energy. So the rest we need is both body and soul. But we're going to focus more on the soul part this morning and take a look at that. Uh, so would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray and then we'll dive into our text and unpack these notes. Father God, our hearts... Our souls are forever restless until we find our rest in you. Our excessive or our inordinate worry and anxiety, fear, agitation, anger, bitterness, control, drivenness, addictions, disappointment, discouragement, and disillusionment are all evidence of our desperate need for you. Jesus, you have lovingly invited all those who labor and are heavy laden to come to you and find rest. And so we come to you this morning and pray that you would liberate our lives, satisfy our souls through a greater revelation of your beauty and glory as you show us wonderful things from the study of your word, we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So let's take a look at this text. We'll read through it. And there's a couple questions we're looking at here this morning. Why we need it. What is it that we need? We're going to talk about Sabbath rest. And so why we need it. And then what is Sabbath rest? And that's what the text is about. So we'll read through the text. And then I'll give you a little bit of the context. And then we'll unpack these notes. Verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields... And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the, of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent and he looked around at them with anger Grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. And so let's take a look at this. Uh, First of all, why we need it. Let me give you a little more context here. So verses 23 and 24 of chapter 2, they are accused of breaking the Sabbath because reaping grain was one of the 39 forms of work that was forbidden according to the religious regulations, according to the Pharisees. Verses 25 and 26, Jesus responds by quoting what David did in the Old Testament. You can find this in 1 Samuel 21. When he was running for his life, went into the holy place of the tabernacle, ate the consecrated bread that only priests are allowed to eat. And what's interesting about this, is what, and this is the point that Jesus is making, is that he was never condemned for it by God. And uh, verse 27, Jesus makes this statement. He says, the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So he's kind of summing it up and saying, hey, wait a minute, you, you guys misunderstand the Sabbath, the Sabbath law. This was meant to build into man's life. It was meant to, to help man, not for man somehow to, to live by some kind of law that would be more burdensome. It's, it was meant to be a blessing. That's the idea here. Now, um, in uh, Exodus chapter 20, we have the Ten Commandments. Turn to the person next to you and see if they can uh, tell you one of the top ten Ten Commandments. See if they know what the, the one of the Ten Commandments is. It's, I find it interesting sometimes, and I think Christians, I think for the most part, if you're Christian, you probably should know the Ten Commandments. Would you guys agree with that? But I always find it interesting, you know, in some of those late night, late night talk shows, they'll go out on the street and they'll ask people, hey, give us one of the Ten Commandments. And... You know, they'll come up with really goofy stuff like God helps those who can't help themselves or whatever. You know, stuff like this. And have you guys ever seen shows like that where they do that? And a lot of people, they're, they're clueless about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are, are a pretty good uh, set of guidelines. What's fascinating about the Ten Commandments is that uh, they follow in the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 19. Chapter 20 gives us the Ten Commandments. Chapter 19 is covenant love. So God establishes his love with us, and then he says, oh, your response to me as you love me back, this is how it will look. It will look as you obey me. So he loves us. He brings us into his family. We're his own. And and then he says, and this is how it looks if you are indeed obeying me and as you're living that out. Now, of course, we know that Jesus summarized all the commandments in two commands. You guys know what those commands are? Yeah, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So pretty much the summer, a summarization. The first four, uh, or the, yeah, the first four of the Ten Commandments deal with the first one, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the next six deal with loving our neighbor as ourself. And so when you read in, I think I've got it on your notes, Exodus 20, 8 through 11 gives us this uh, commandment 
of the Sabbath, Sabbath rest. The word Sabbath means rest, so it's almost like when we say Sabbath rest, we're saying rest, rest. And, uh, but in that commandment, I find this interesting. It's in a list that uh, says not to murder. It's, it's like right up there with murder and adultery and lying and stealing. And, but we don't oftentimes put that much emphasis on, oh, yeah, I didn't get much rest last night, but no big deal. No, and, he, and, and yet the Bible says, no, you need, you need rest. You need Sabbath rest. Rest is, is critical to your well-being. As he gives the commandment, he says that this is a holy day. You know what the word holy means? It's set apart. It's sacred. This is a priority. This is really important. And it's a day that we are to uh, give to the Lord. So it's in relationship with God to enhance our relationship with God. And it also says that it's a day that he has blessed. In other words, it's meant to be a blessing and not a burden in our lives. Kevin DeYoung wrote the book, Crazy Busy. It's a springboard for this series. And here's a quote from that book. He says, God's design was not to punish little kids with naps on Sundays. How many like taking naps on Sundays? You're not a little kid. You're old like me, or maybe not quite as old, but you just enjoy taking naps on Sunday. How many are going to go home and take a nap uh, today? I said that last night, and there was quite a number of people here, and they said, yeah, we're sleeping in tomorrow. So they're right now sleeping in. Those that came on Saturday night are sleeping in. But uh, we all like taking naps. When, you, when I was a kid, I never liked taking naps, but now I love taking naps. But here's his point. God's design was not to punish little kids with naps on Sundays or to drive us to boredom and inactivity once every seven days. God gives us Sabbath as a gift. It's an island of get to in a sea of have to. I like that. Now, why do we need this? Why do we need the Sabbath rest? Why do we need to take out time? Why is the doctrine of rest just as important as the doctrine of of work in Scripture? Why would we have this on this list of, uh, of the Ten Commandments? And it's the fourth one down, by the way. Uh, and here's a number of reasons as we look around in our culture today why we especially need this rest is because jobs are more unstable than ever before because of our fragile economy. We need rest because jobs are more unstable than ever before because of our fragile economy. Here's the second one. Demands are much higher because of our fragile economy, demands on the job are much higher, greater competition among companies. You need to turn a profit. You need to perform. If not, you're down the road. And so that puts more pressure on us. We're finding that we're having to work more hours to turn a profit. And because of the competition, and we're going to have to perform more. And even some I've seen have to, some have to work several jobs just to make ends meet. Here's the third one. Because of our day and time, technology keeps us tied to it. Technology, our technological times, it keeps us tied to it. You can work anywhere and take work home. Now, my office is at, at my house, and it makes it kind of tough. My wife has had to draw some boundaries from time to time and said, Hey, enough of the work, dude. You know, and she's, she will tell me from time to time, Hey, I, I, I need for you not to spend so much time in your office. And so she helps me with that, and I've been learning through the years not to be such a workaholic. My work is right there, though it, it, it's, it's handy at 2 o'clock in the morning when I wake up and can't sleep and I can go in there and knock out some stuff and get some things done, having my office right there. But it, it can indeed intrude in every aspect of our lives. But here's the fourth one and the fourth reason, particularly in our culture, identity is overly attached to it. 
past traditional societies, their identity was uh, based on their family or their social role. But we are the first culture in history to define our identity or ourself by what we want, why, what we want to be, and by attaining it. So our culture today, we don't get so much our identity. In fact, because it's, we're a very individualistic society. So we tell everybody, hey, you can be what you want to be and do what you want to do. And so that's what drives us. And that's what our identity is based on. On achievement, accomplishment. And uh, so that drives us. And therefore, what this does, because of this... So if you look at 1, 2, and 3 of this list that I just gave you, 1, 2, and 3 means we have a more desperate need for rest than ever before, our cultural environment. But number 4, identity is overly attached to it, means that we emotionally, that is, on the inside or our soul, we have less ability to rest because we're more driven to attain, to achieve, to accomplish Especially with our identity being based on, on our labor, on our work. You guys been watching the Olympics? Anybody? Show of hands? Okay, a couple of us. You guys aren't into the uh, Winter Olympics, huh? I see. No, no, okay. What's wrong with you? <laughs> I guess I'm not as big on the Winter Olympics, uh, but it's much easier watching people out in the cold when, when I'm warm here. And, uh, and I mean, this is a little bit off the subject, but man, they've been getting hammered along the East Coast with cold weather, haven't they? And here we are in short sleeves, shirts and shorts and just soaking it up and laughing at them. Don't be laughing at them. They're getting hammered. But uh, back, back to the Olympics, I'm sorry. Um, the Olympics, it's interesting. I don't know if you guys watched it. Those of you that watched it, did you see the slope style, the men's slope style? Those people are out of control. Those guys are crazy. It's like they're jumping over these ramps. They spend most of the time going backwards, down the hill, up ramps, flipping around, landing on their feet. At least they try to. And uh, they got to be going 40, 50 miles an hour. It's just It's just crazy. How many saw the, those that you're watching us, watch the skeleton, the women's skeleton? The, the, the one gal that missed the bronze medal from America by four hundredths of a second. Did you see the interview with her? She was, I mean, to, she should have been sad. There's no doubt about it. Certainly not in despair. But why, why are we so driven by the Olympics? Why, why would most of these that are performing have spent their whole life in achievement of a, of a gold medal. The guy from Canada, who's the figure skater, uh, missed the gold medal. And, and uh, he was a bit upset. And I'm thinking, there's like millions of people who just love to be in the Olympics. But there's something that drives that. We want, that's our identity. Our identity can be overly attached to these things. And it can... Uh, it drives us. We become addicted in this whole process. And, and our sense of well-being is not based on, on God's love for us, but it's more based on our labor. And I want to show you a video clip. This is actually from uh, the movie Peaceful Warriors, an independent film that came out a number of years ago. And the young man in this film is wanting to go to the Olympics. And he's really driven by it. In fact... 
for him, it's not, just a, it's not just a good thing. It has become the ultimate thing in his life. It's a form of idolatry. And you can see it in this clip that he can't sleep. And so he goes to this service station and there's this kind of guru type guy that's there that kind of tries to talk to him and ask him, ask him questions. And you can see this guy gets pretty upset over the questions that he's asking him, him as he's trying to dive deep into his heart to find out why is he, what is he really achieving? What is he wanting to accomplish in life? Check this out and we'll talk more about it. So it's interesting, he asked him if he's happy. Did you hear how he was basing his happiness on? And then he begins, you know, he asked him, so uh, what if you don't make the Olympics? Do you think the Olympics were really important for him? Yeah. What do you mean if I don't make the Olympics? What do you mean by that? So what is he driven by? Where's his identity? His identity is making it in the Olympics. And so that tends to drive his life. And that's, that's part of this idea. Our identity is overly attached to to our work, to, to our labor. If work is your identity or labor or the Olympics or kids, how your kids turn out or your marriage or any number of things, anything other than Christ is your identity, then success will go to your head and failure will go to your heart. It'll devastate you. And so... We've got to look at this Sabbath rest. What is Sabbath rest? And, and uh, I think there's a lot of great insight that we can draw from this. Let me give you uh, the first, first fill in the blanks of this under, underneath what is Sabbath rest. Jesus is claiming to be God, deity, and the deep rest I long for in verse 28. Let me read that one for you. Verse 28, he says, so the Son of Man... Jesus oftentimes referred to himself as the Son of Man. This is a statement that's found in the book of Daniel, and it's reference to deity. It's reference to God. So he's referring to himself as God, God in the flesh. And then he says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of, of the Sabbath. A couple questions here, and I think that your best commentary for Scripture is always Scripture. Would you guys agree with that? Anytime you're studying something to try to understand what is this Sabbath rest, it's probably best to look elsewhere throughout the scriptures. So let me take you to a couple other places. Don't need to go there, but for instance, in Genesis chapter 1, you see God, creator, creating, and after he creates with each thing that he creates, what does he say? It is what? It is good. It is good. It is good. And then all of a sudden, he comes to the end and on the seventh day, he finished his work and rested. Doesn't it sound a little peculiar that God would rest? It doesn't seem that God would need rest. And yet on the seventh day, he, he establishes the Sabbath, and then it says that he rested. Can God get tired? No, actually, he can't. He can't get tired. And so this word, this idea of rest, Sabbath rest, must, must have another understanding, and indeed it does. It means that he was satisfied. He was satisfied in what he had done. And so in essence, by Jesus referring to himself as the son of man, he's saying that he is God. I am the creator who originated the Sabbath on the seventh day. I finished my work and rested. I was satisfied with what I had done. Now let's go to another place to help us to also understand that. Don't need to turn there. Let me just talk about it. I've got the verses here in front of me. Hebrews 4 Verses 1 through 11, you can read this further on your own as you work through the growing notes. But there's a couple of verses here that help us to understand what does it mean that he is Lord of the Sabbath. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 4 tells us in verse 10, there is a Sabbath rest for the people of God, 
for whoever has entered God's rest. And the context there is telling us how we enter God's rest. We enter God's rest uh, by faith in Jesus. So whoever has put their faith in Jesus has entered this Sabbath rest, has also rested from his works as God did from his, referring back to the beginning in creation. So he was satisfied. Now now track with me here. What is he getting at here? What What is this idea here that he's claiming to be God, deity, he found satisfaction, and then he is the deep rest I long for. Here's what he's getting at. He's getting at basically the gospel message. If you can understand the basic gospel message and not just know it as a concept, but it's a reality deep in your heart, you're going to find unbelievable soul rest. Here's the basic gospel message. There is a major difference, and I've talked about this since the beginning of this series, there's a major difference between working for your identity and working from your identity. Haven't I been saying that if you've been with us throughout this series? So there's a difference from from being involved in the Olympics and you're operating out of an identity versus trying to do well to gain an identity. Major difference in how you perform. Here's the basic uh, gospel. The Christian life is not what I must do to be right with God, but it is what God has done to make me right with him. If you were to ask most people, what does it mean to be a Christian? Most would not define it that way. Most don't even know what it is. And most that are rejecting it are rejecting something that they don't even fully understand. There are even a lot of Christians. And when you say, hey, you want to become a Christian? Or are you a Christian? They immediately go to what they must do as opposed to what has already been done for them once and for all. Your preoccupation as a Christian should never be on what you do. It should always be based, it should always be, you should be preoccupied with what he's done because what he's done is what changes what you do. And don't ever reverse the order, you become religion. You become very religious, you become like the Pharisees. And see, what happens is that you find yourself, you are laboring for his love rather than out of his love you labor. Major difference between the two. So what you have to ask yourself is, even while you're here today, why am I here today? Am I I here because of his love or am I here somehow to gain his love, to achieve his love? If you're here to achieve it, you've already got it. It comes to you through Jesus. This is what separates Christianity from all the major cults and religions of our world today. Everything else is a labor for acceptance And in Christianity, we are accepted, therefore we labor. I don't obey God to get his acceptance. I have his acceptance, therefore I obey him. See, that's the gospel message. It's amazing. You mean I have his acceptance? Yeah, yeah, you have him. You have him in your life because of the sacrificial love of the son on the cross. And then out of that abundance, as you savor his love, as you enjoy his love, as you enjoy his presence, then, then your performance comes out of that. Can you, can you see how it would make a difference in how you perform? You're not operating out of deficit and desperation. You're operating out of abundance and more out of satisfaction. It makes all the difference in how you, how you live out your life. So as a Christian, I'm working from my identity in Christ rather than for my identity. 
As I said, I don't labor for his love. I labor from his love. And um, let me just say that uh, I absolutely love that last song we sang, Waiting for You. Do you guys like that song? I mean, oh, my goodness. I'm back here tearing up, thinking about the presence of God. That's the best thing about the Christian life is the presence of God. And you, and you don't get it or achieve it through your performance. It's through the performance of Jesus. He died on the cross to give us God. And we've got his presence. I mean, that's awesome. That's amazing. You have the presence of God through Jesus Christ. That's all you need. But see, we don't have to live in the reality of it. We get thrown back into this works righteousness trip. And, and, um, and it alienates us rather than to, to say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have everything I need through Jesus Christ. And so the gospel frees us from the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves because, here's the next point, all the acceptance, security, and significance I'll ever need are found in Christ. All the acceptance, security, and significance I'll ever need are found in Christ. Now, Jesus didn't come to do away with the Sabbath. When you read this, he's not saying, all those religious guys are so legalistic, we don't even need to do the Sabbath. He doesn't do that. He comes, and comes to fulfill the Sabbath. You don't hear him saying, we need to get rid of the Sabbath. He's still saying, hey, this is important stuff, but I am. I am the Sabbath. What did he say? So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what does he mean by that? What is he talking about here? Well, this is what it, what it means. We've got to combine verse 28 with chapter 3, verse 6. Remember chapter 3, verse 6? Did you see what those guys were doing? The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. And guess what? They did. They hung him on a cross. They killed him, making him the Lord of the Sabbath. So on the cross, Jesus was restless, to say the least. In fact, there was a word that they had to coin to describe the cross. It's called excruciating. The word excruciating means out of the cross because it was so overwhelming to our Savior. And anyone that hung on the cross, it was excruciating. He was restless. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was restless. Why is that? Isaiah 57.20 says this, that the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace for the wicked. What is wicked? We, def- we defined it last week. Wicked can be defined by Jeremiah 2.13. Now, this is what wickedness is or evil Unless we come up with some kind of a simplistic definition. It's it's pretty serious definition. Jeremiah 2.13 says that evil or wickedness is to forsake the fountain of living water, which is God, for broken cisterns. This is what it means. It means to desire anything in creation over and above the creator. He said, anytime we want something in creation or try to find our sense of identity in creation as opposed to the creator, the Bible says is that we've taken the path of, of wicked. And, and what does it say based on what, it, what I just quoted? Isaiah 55, 57, 20. It's going to create a restlessness. There is no rest for those who turn away from God. So Jesus on the cross was restless because... He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
All of our wickedness, all of our evil, all of our sin was placed upon him. I just quoted 2 Corinthians 5.21. I think you can follow along there on your uh, sermon notes and read that on your own later this week. Jesus experienced infinite restlessness so that when he died, he could say, it is finished. Now, those are the same words that are used when God created the heavens and the earth and he got to the point and got to the seventh day and said, hey, done, finished, it's all good, I'm satisfied. Same word used. Pretty interesting. It is finished, satisfied. What is finished? Everything necessary for us to be justified by faith and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. Turn to the person next to you and see if they even know what the word justified means. We are justified by faith. We are justified by faith. See if they know what that means. That's a good word. It's a, it's a biblical word. We need to know that word. Justified. Okay, what do you guys what were you guys thinking when you're thinking of justified? Anybody use the old definition I grew up with, which is actually a good definition, just as if, just as if I've never sinned. Anybody say that? Anybody do that? Yeah, that's a good one. It's actually a good definition. That's what it means. That when we are justified before God, it's as if we have never even sinned. Just as if. It's a, it's an interesting word. It actually means also to be declared righteous. Declared, it's an instantaneous status change. That when I put my faith in Jesus, this is what's so miraculous, that when I begin to see my need for God, I put my faith in Jesus, finished work of Christ on the cross, instantaneously I go from enemy of God to what? Child of God? Lavished by his love? Yeah, I go from an object of his wrath to an object of his amazing love. Immediate. Immediate status change. That's what justified means. Immediately, I stand before God completely righteous. Immediately, I have his presence. Immediately, I have everything that I need in him. Immediately, I have all the the acceptance and security and significance I'll ever need. The problem is, is that I don't always live in the reality of that. I don't fully understand that, so I spend the rest of my life trying to drive that deep into my heart. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute, what Sabbath rest helps us to do that. But But that's what that means. That everything necessary for us to be justified by faith and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to me. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have peace with God. There's no division between you and God. You have access to the throne room of God. When he died on the cross, you know that that uh, curtain that separated everyone from the Holy of Holies and only once a year could the high priest go into that place? That was ripped from top to bottom. In essence, an invitation into the Holy of Holies for all of us to have an intimate relationship with the infinite God. Man, that's, that's amazing. You and I have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have peace with God. Nothing separates you from God. Nothing. And to the degree that you understand that you have peace with God is to the degree that you will have the peace of God rule your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. That peace that goes beyond understanding. When all hell is breaking loose in your life, that there will be a peace, a peace that will guard your heart and mind, that goes beyond understanding 
Why? Because you have access into the throne room of God because you know that there are no barriers between you and God. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Because you know in your heart, deep in your heart, you have peace with God. Therefore, therefore, you have the peace of God ruling your heart and mind. If we ever freak out over anything, it's only because we're not living in the reality of the fact that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's the peace with God that gives us the peace of God that rules our hearts and minds. So if you don't have the peace of God, it's because you need to go back to peace with God and realize that's not based on your performance, it's based on the performance of Jesus Christ. It's a done deal. Enter into it by faith. You guys tracking with me? You guys are awfully quiet in here. I'm up here ranting and raving. You better not fall asleep on me. I mean, this is serious stuff. This is revolutionary. This is the kind of stuff that began to really transform my life. I began to realize, why am I freaking out if I have peace with God? I should have the peace of God ruling my heart and mind. But it's because I'm not living in the reality of the fact that I have peace with God. I love the story of uh, the woman that was caught in adultery. John chapter 8. Still trying to figure out where the guy was, okay? They drag her out there. Where's the guy? It takes two to commit adultery, okay? So they drag her out in front of the religious leaders. It's just absolutely a brilliant story. I just love it. And so they come and challenge Jesus. What should we do with her? Should we stone her? You know, he's try- they're trying to trap Jesus. And so Jesus says, which, which is unbelievably profound, he says, he who's without sin, do what? Cast the first stone, throw the first stone. And immediately, immediately, our Savior, he levels the playing field. Basically, he just says, guess what? We're all, we're all the same. We all struggle. We all have sins. We're all separated from God. We're all in desperate need of a Savior. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Wages of sin is death. Separation. He is without sin, throw the first stone. If you ever go to a church where people are throwing stones at each other, yes, I wasn't, I wasn't asking that as a question, but I was saying if you do, but apparently you have, okay. <laughs> I hope not this church, but it can certainly happen. And it's only because when people do that is that they don't understand the grace of God. And they don't understand their need for his grace. They don't understand that he is without sin, throw the first stone. None of us are without sin, and so he levels the playing field. And then, and then what do they do? One by one, the religious leaders do what? They, they drop the stones, and then they walk out one by one. And then he walks over to the woman. And I imagine the shame. Imagine the shame that she was experiencing. He walks over to the woman, and he says, Where are your accusers? And she says, I have none. And then he says, so, so, so profoundly, I just love it. Just healing every time I think about it. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, he didn't say, go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. He didn't say that. He didn't say that. He said, neither do I condemn you. You have access into the throne room of God. It's paid in full. And that's what, that's in essence, is what he was saying. It's by faith. That's amazing. And, and go and sin no more. See, our ability to go and sin no more, what we do is based on what has been done for us 
through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so this is what we've got to do. We've got to work to get that deep into our heart so that it revolutionizes our life. And that's what transforms our lives. See, if, you, if you're in a church where all they do is pound you about what you need to do, you need to do more, you need to do this, you need to, wait, 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 time out. It's not about what you do, it's about what has been done. And then out of that, you do what you're going to need to do. You guys see the difference? Otherwise, that creates this drivenness, this control, this addiction. It creates all this stuff. No, we have all the love we need in him. And, uh, and I love that. And that's, that's it. Here's the next point on your notes. It is, it is a resting in Christ alone for our salvation. But also, and this is, I'm going to explain to you what I do in my Sabbath. When I take a Sabbath, it is also diverting daily, withdrawing weekly, and abandoning annually to reinforce this truth deep in our hearts. See, the problem is, is that we say we believe that, and yet we really, we're not living in the reality of it. So we've got to drive it deep into our hearts. So Sabbath rest is a principle, but also a practice of driving the principle deep in our heart. Let me take you through a couple verses here. Deuteronomy 5.15. Deuteronomy 5.15, it says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. The idea of Sabbath rest is also speaks of the promised land, the land of milk and honey, entering into that. that. That's kind of that picture, Old Testament picture, the fullness of life that we have in Jesus Christ. But he says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Slaves did not have a day off. They worked seven days a week. They worked hard, but God set them free. The slavery in Egypt is similar to, it's a picture of our life before Christ. We were enslaved to sin. He came and redeemed us and set us free. That's why the Christian life is the most liberating life there is. He set us free from sin and shame. And so he said that, uh, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And it's interesting, he says, therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Huh? Why was he saying keep the Sabbath day? Because I want you to remember this. I want to drive this truth deep into your heart. I set you free and you're liberated But for you to begin to live like liberated people, you need to take a Sabbath to be reminded of that and to drive that deep into your heart. Now, when they were set free from Egyptian bondage, where were they headed? They were headed where? They were headed to the promised land. They wandered around in the wilderness and they spent too much time in the wilderness because of their unbelief. There was a whole generation that was wiped out because of their unbelief. But they were headed to the promised land. So what we could say based on this verse and based on this Sabbath rest is that out of Egypt, coming out of Egypt is life liberating. Heading to the promised land is soul satisfying. And he's saying, hey, there's a life liberating, soul satisfying truth that you need to drive deep into your heart. And the Sabbath rest will help you do that. Now. There are a couple things that I do for my Sabbath rest. Write these words down on your notes somewhere. I didn't put this on your notes, but I do three things. I do one that is avocational. Write the word vocational and then put an A in front of that, avocational. And I'll do something that's avocational. For instance, if you fish for a living, don't go fishing, okay, uh, on your Sabbath rest. Or if you're a carpenter, don't do carpentry. Do something that you don't typically do as your vocation. That's what I mean by that, is that do something that's out of the ordinary for you of your everyday work life. So I do something that's avocational. 
I also do something that's contemplative. We're going to spend some more time on that next week. Contemplative or meditative. I, I contemplate, I reflect, I think. I'm driving these truths down deep into my heart. And then I do this, that which is inactive. Just write the word inactive. So avocational, contemplative, and inactive on my Sabbath. Now, when I take a Sabbath, I, t- I, I take, I, notice you, I said divert daily. Every day, I start my day by, in a sense, in a kind of a mini Sabbath of, of rest. Resting in him. Resting in the reality of who he is and what he's done for me. Driving those truths deep into my heart. Having an experience and an encounter with God. But you also do that weekly. That you should set aside one day where you're trying to drive those truths deep into your heart. All that you do, it's all unto the Lord so that you begin to build up your satisfaction more and more for him as you reflect and contemplate what he's doing and what he's done in your life. And then the idea of inactive is what they would do... When they would let the land, they would give the land a Sabbath rest. They just let anything and everything grow in the land. So here's what inactive means: is that you just don't do anything. That you just part of that day, or, or, or as you're taking a Sabbath, you just don't do. It. You just hang out. You just veg out. And I know that's a little bit hard for some of you that have uh, have kids, a house full of kids, and so you know you got to dump your kids off to to family for a couple months. Okay, you got to figure figure that out so that you can have those from time to time. But the idea here, the purpose of Sabbath rest is to find your maximum pleasure or your joy in God. Listen to this verse. Write this verse down too. I don't think I put it on your notes. Isaiah fifty eight thirteen and fourteen. Isaiah fifty eight thirteen and fourteen. Listen to what it says here. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. I like the way it was it was put. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interest on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath and speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. Honor the Lord in everything you do and don't follow your own interest or talk idly. Don't waste that day. Spend it building up and stirring up your appetite for God. If you do this, the Lord will be your delight. And then notice what he says, and I will give you great honor and give you your full share of the inheritance. In other words, man, life liberating, soul satisfying, I will give you your full inheritance. I promise Jacob, your ancestor, I the Lord have spoken. So it's just meant to stir that up. Now, you'll notice we got a few more fill in the blanks. We're not going to do them those this weekend. I'm going to save those for next week. You got to come back next week to find out how do you drive that deep into your heart. And that's how we're going to conclude this teaching series, okay? How do you like that for a cliffhanger, huh? Yeah. Kind of forces you to have to come back. Or you can listen online if you'd like. Not the same as being here. But uh, there's two parts of, of this kind of contemplative and this worship. There is seeing God and there is savoring God. There's understanding with the mind and feeling in the heart. And that's what I tr- typically do. Lord, help me to see you more clearly. Help me to savor you more completely in my heart. And what I do during this, this day, this Sabbath... By the way, when I go on vacation, I try to really connect with God. And, and what I'm trying to do is zero in with your mind's attention and heart's affection on your most satisfying reality, which is God. Let me end with a story, and you guys are out of here, okay? Um, from Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, he says, Henry and Kevin had both lost their jobs because of an unfair action of their bosses. Henry forgave his boss, moved on, was doing very well, while Kevin could not move past it. 
He stayed bitter and cynical, and it affected his future career path. Some people tried to help him by working on his emotions, which would be kind of the psychological approach or the emotional approach. And the more sympathy people showed Kevin, the more he felt justified in his anger and the more his self-pity grew. Other people tried to work directly on his will. This is kind of more of the moral approach. And they said, hey, get past it. Move on. Suck it up. That did not work either. The gospel works in a different way. It does not work directly on the emotions or the will. The gospel asks, what is operating in the place of Jesus Christ as your real functional Savior, salvation and Savior? What is your identity? So you can see if your identity is your work and things don't go well at your work, so goes your emotional well-being. What are you looking to in order to justify yourself? Whatever it is, is a counterfeit God, and to make a change in your life, you must identify it and reject it as such. And we're going to talk more about this next week. How do you work on your heart? How do you work on your heart, deep in your heart, as it relates to, to these counterfeit gods? Kevin was looking to his career to prove himself. And when something went wrong, he felt condemned. He was paralyzed because the very foundations of his identity were falling apart. He made no progress until he saw that he had made his career his self-salvation. It was not just that he had to forgive his boss. His real problem was that something besides Jesus Christ was functioning as a savior. There's always something underneath your inordinate and out of control problems, desires, patterns, attitudes, and emotions. Until you find out what it is, you cannot have life in peace. Kevin came to see that though he technically believed he was loved with God's costly grace, it wasn't an absorbing truth that had captured his heart and imagination. That's the purpose of Sabbath. That the truth of who Jesus is and what he means to us becomes an absorbing truth that captures our heart and our imagination. What his boss said to him was more real and affecting to his heart than what the king of the universe had said. Got to come back next week. We'll talk more about it. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? So Sabbath rest, Sabbath rest is taking this truth that all that we have in Christ and driving it deep within our heart, taking out time every day, every week and doing that so that we begin to live more and more in the reality of that. God, thank you for these truths. Thank you for the difference that they've made in my life. Oh my goodness, God, I just, I'm overwhelmed by the rest that I have found over the last few years of just really finding my identity more and more in you and help us to see that we have peace with you. We have peace with you, God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can have this peace that goes beyond understanding to guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, regardless of what goes down in our life. Help us to see that, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you.